I was kind of a wayward kid, certainly, uh, you know, a little bit lost in my 20s. And uh, I, I, I was looking for a direction, certainly. And I think culinary provided that for me. Uh, again, um, you know, as soon as I got to culinary school, um, I really, uh, you know, people said that my my eyes lit up and, and my attitude changed and I, and I, and I seemed really uh, excited and engaged uh, for, for the first time in, in something. And it's, uh, you know, it's given me a, a wonderful 20-year run and uh, I, I love it to this day. Welcome back, rock stars. I'm really inspired by this week's guest. Chef D is a seasoned operator in Los Angeles who's had multiple concepts. He's gone through all the pivots and changes and pandemic challenges that you've all had. But what's really inspiring is he's finding solutions to the labor shortage by utilizing labor that you wouldn't typically think for your restaurant. Rehabilitated, incarcerated individuals, homeless people, and Chef D's main philosophy is up-leveling the industry by not just creating jobs, but creating career opportunities. So I'm really pleased to introduce Chef D. Brandon Walker is his real name, but we're going to call him Chef D, as he likes to be called. But listen to this episode. He has a new concept that he's launching called The Art Room, which I found really interesting in that it blends an art gallery with a food concept. It's upscale, it's beautiful, it's elegant, and it elevates our industry in addition to how he chooses to staff his restaurants and the benefits and the fulfillment and gratification that come from giving people a second chance. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Restaurant owners and managers, I call this the business of a thousand details, and you've got more important things to worry about than calculating and paying your monthly sales tax on time. Well, that's where Davo comes in. Davo puts sales tax on autopilot for restaurants. Davo uses sales tax data from your point of sale system to set aside the exact amount of sales tax you collect every single day and then files it and pays it when it's due on time for your restaurant every month. Davo takes just five minutes to set up, and once it's up and running, you never have to worry about paying sales tax again. Davo costs $49.99 per POS connection per month, and your restaurant can try Davo for the first 30 days free. Davo was created by a successful restaurant chef and owner who knows what's important for your operation. Time is money, and you've got more important things to focus on, like pleasing your guests. You can't put a price on peace of mind. Why not try Davo for the first 30 days at DavoSalesTax.com? Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and I meet so many interesting people on this show. And I'm with Chef D today, and he is he is elevating the culinary world with a really unique business model. We're going to get into all of that, begin with my guest backstory. So welcome to the show, Chef D. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Excited yeah, to uh, yeah. talk. I'm excited to have you here. Again, this is such an interesting concept and you have such an interesting approach to the business. But let's, again, start with your backstory and you can take us back you know, wherever you'd like to go. But I'm really interested in your inspirations, when it all began to you, for you, obviously, your culinary passions, your influences, all of that is what we want to hear. Well, um, I've been a chef for 20 years. 
Um, I went to uh, culinary school in 2002. I went to uh, trade technical college here in Los Angeles, which is the city's oldest culinary school. Um, and I think that as soon as I got there, I realized that this was for me. Uh, I was one of those people that when I got into the kitchen, um, it was something that really appealed to me. The, uh, the order, the structure, the hierarchy, the, um, you know, working as a team, um, only being as strong as your weakest link. Um, that really appealed to me as a, as a young man. Um, my, I, I can say that I did not come from a food centric family. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, my mom was, uh, was a, a pretty good cook, you know, uh, and I enjoyed her food, but we, we, uh, had a very small family. And so we didn't have a lot of big family gatherings and, and I never really, fully understood the importance and the significance of food um, and, and, you know, in uh, um, socialization and, and culture and, and whatnot. And so I think I got exposed to that later as a, as a teenager, uh, uh, just kind of, you know, being uh, introduced to some of my friends' families and seeing, you know, the important role that food played. And I think that's when I started to become interested in food for the first time. And I was kind of a wayward kid. Certainly, uh, you know, a little bit lost in my 20s. And uh, I, I, I was looking for a direction, certainly. And I think culinary provided that for me. Uh, again, um, you know, as soon as I got to culinary school, um, I really, uh, you know, people said that my, my eyes lit up and, and my attitude changed. And I, and I, and I seemed really uh, excited and engaged uh, for, for the first time in, in something. And it's, uh, you know, it's given me a, a wonderful 20-year run, and uh, I, I love it to this day. So the light bulb went off, and you said, this is it. You knew instantly this is where you belong, and, and you, ha- you obviously have a passion for it. Was there a certain type of cuisine that you sort of really were into cooking back then? Did that evolve? When you go to culinary school, you're exposed, obviously, to multiple cuisines, fusions and different cultures and different countries and all that stuff. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I I do. Um, And I think that the food scene in LA is is a very specific one. Um, I think that it has a very specific palate, like you would find in a lot of other major cities. You know, um, we we have a very specific mix here. Uh, We have a very strong um, Korean uh, Armenian, Oaxacan. It's a very specific mix, um, here in Los Angeles. And those were certainly the foods that, um, I gravitated towards. So I would, I would definitely include, um, you know, Asian cuisine, um, all things Mexican cuisine, um, and, uh, a lot of influences, Mediterranean and, and, uh, and, uh, Eastern Europe, Middle Eastern. Um, LA is such a great, um, uh, food town. Uh, you know, we have such distinct neighborhoods and, um, such, uh, you know, strong culture here. Um, you know, and I think that we kind of got put under this umbrella of California cuisine for a long time. I think that, you know, the, the rest of the nation kind of saw us as that. Um, but, um, we have some very, very, um, strong and very specific cultural mixes here. Yeah, that's so interesting. I lived in Los Angeles for three years. And yeah, we used to go to Alvera Street for Mexican. You know, we'd go to Chinatown for Chinese. And it would be like 
you'd immerse yourself in a different culture, you'd take yourself to a different place. And, you know, food is transformative in so many ways. It's the universal language. It's it's what brings us all together, but it's really interesting to experience different cuisines. That's that's fantastic. When you're cooking at home, uh, do you like to cook a specific dish for yourself? What's your favorite thing to eat? <laughs> you know, I, I sad to say I, I don't do a lot of cooking at home. When you uh, have the time, I, yeah. My, my wife is Okinawan. Uh-huh. Um, and so she has some fantastic Okinawan dishes that I love, yeah. uh, that I love eating. Um, you know, I, I just enjoy it when somebody else is doing the cooking. Uh, I tend to work, uh, you know, six, seven days a week. So right. not, I not how much doing the cooking. Yeah. You know, I, I was never a chef or I don't claim to be a solid cook. I can make a mean risotto and, you know, caramelized scallops at home. One of my favorite dishes, but it's like, I never cooked in the kitchen at my restaurant other than, well, I shouldn't say that we had a wood fired pizzeria, which was our first concept. And I used to love getting in front of that wood fired oven and, and cooking the pies. That was very therapeutic to me. And I would jump in just because I enjoyed doing it. But other than that, it's like I stayed off the line. It's like, you know, I was the finance and marketing guy when I owned restaurants. Let me ask you a question. Well, um, if, yeah, if, if you can put, if, yeah, if you can pull off a good risotto, then uh, I think you got what it takes. Yeah. Well, that's very, that's very technique. That's very technique heavy. I've been doing it for so many years. I could do it blindfolded, you know, dash of this little white wine to, you know, <laughs> yeah, I have a good time with it. Let me ask you, um, when you're in culinary school, did you learn the whole financial side of the business as well? Is that a focus when, when you go to a culinary school? Because it's not just about cooking. Because yes, a lot of people are going to go out and they're going to work for other restaurant owners. But ultimately, a lot of people like yourself ultimately want to own their own restaurant. And so many chefs you know, find out sometimes the hard way that, hey, it's so much more than just being an amazing culinarian. It's all about people skills and financial skills and marketing skills and the whole in addition to running a kitchen and running a dining room and every thousand details, I call it, what would you say? Did you learn those skills in, um, you know, in culinary school as well, or is that on the job training as well? Where'd that come from? No, uh, that was on the job. Uh, yep. can't say we got much on the financial side in culinary school. Uh, okay. the, you know, I was fortunate. I had a very unique, I got into it a little bit later. So I was in my late twenties by the time that I, uh, I started, um, at culinary school. I think it was mm-hmm. 28 when I entered. And um, the cool thing about that is that I also needed to have a job, you know, uh, at the exact same time. So I would, I would go from, I'd go to culinary school from six o'clock in the morning till about one o'clock in the afternoon. And then um, I had a shift that started at two and I would work from two to 11 um, for uh, Jenny Cook. Jenny Cook uh, is this amazing chef here based in Los Angeles. And she had this great place called the Double Dutch. And I saw this sole proprietor, um, you know, run a restaurant with a very busy lunch and a dinner service. In addition to that, um, uh, really the core of her business was uh, her catering. So um, it was one of those immersive places where you just got thrown in and you got to do everything right away. I mean, literally from, you know, uh, you know, loading your car up with equipment and, and going on location to, um, you know, prepping the food for lunch and uh, dinner service. So to, to see, to see her do her thing and to survive and to thrive, um, you quickly realize how many, you know, things you have to be good at. That's a perfect segue because now with your concept, and we're going to get into obviously Mar Vista in a few moments, but 
you have a very unique training model and you have a very unique way of attracting staff and building them, developing them, nurturing them. But what really struck me is you, you involve them in almost every aspect of the business. And they, I get the sense that they get rotated through all these different jobs. And do they then specialize or focus or is it just cross training so that anyone can jump into any position? Tell us all about your training model. Right. So, I mean, this was really born out of my own work experience. So um, I went from Jenny Cook to work for uh, uh, many wonderful chefs uh, in fine dining. And mm-hmm. that was kind of that defined the first part of my career, the first five years of my career. Um, and, uh, you know, I got burned out and I actually took a hiatus from uh, the industry for about a year there. Um, uh, so I was about five years in and, and I just, you know, I was working 60 hours a week and, and I felt that the management style was, you know, um, you know, left something to be desired. It could be toxic at time. Okay. Uh, the, and yeah. And, um, so I found I found myself being, uh, a little disillusioned, um, at that point. And, and I didn't feel, I didn't see the clear path to what you referenced earlier, which was ultimately wanting to own my own business. I felt more on that was being kind of like, you know, um, pushed around. And, um, so after this hiatus, I started working for the St. Joseph Center. And that's really the watershed moment in my career that changed everything because that was a nonprofit organization that um, had this wonderful place called the Bread and Roses Cafe where we uh, did um, meals each and every day for about 150 folks uh, that were experiencing homelessness. Um, and um, Beautiful. We this also, is a wonderful story. We also ran... Uh, a thing called CTP or culinary training program. And mm-hmm. this was a, a class that happened eight times a year. It was uh, um, seven weeks in length, each rotation. And it was comprised of 16 students that were coming from all different walks of life um, that had faced many challenges in their lives. Um, they were underemployed or uh, unemployed. Um, we had folks coming, you know, with PTSD from the military, um, you know, high functioning autism, um, you know, a history of drug addiction coming from rehab centers, mm-hmm. um, uh, also from the um, from the prison systems as wow. well. Awesome. So, yeah, so this was this really changed everything. And, and I found my purpose. But not only did I find my purpose and my passion um, in, in helping people. Um, as an educator, I also found uh, a philosophy that I would later use to um, run my restaurants. And, and this was kind of like a Kaizen, kind of that Japanese philosophy of you know, constant improvement, um, solving problems as a team, everyone being able to um, uh, um, be interchangeable. Um, you know, uh, everyone doing everything and that, that fostering a sense of equity, um, and also what I like to call willingness, you know, when people feel that they, you've invested in them and that they have the opportunity to grow and to be promoted and to take on more responsibility, they are willing to do that. And, and I think that's what fosters, uh, this, this great, um, work environment. And I think that's so important to have um, your staff engaged um, to to run a successful food operation. 
No question about it. No question. But it all starts with leadership and yourself and leading at the top. So I get the sense that you lead clearly by example and that you're right in there every single day and you're nurturing and developing and you're empowering people. You know, we've recently started to discover this sort of difference on the podcast because most managers in this industry will delegate. You know, we 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 think that that's a, a really important thing to do so that, you know, you're not doing everything clearly, but there's a very clear and distinct difference between delegating and empowering because anybody can tell somebody what to do, but it's the rare manager or owner that literally nurtures and develops his people and gives them more responsibility, gives them a chance to fail and trusts in their judgment and then recognizes and rewards those people for their achievement. There's a huge difference between delegation and empowerment. So I'm getting the sense that you are definitely an empowering leader. So I, I'm really inspired by that. That That is tremendous. Let's talk a little bit about, well, let's talk about inclusivity because again, you, you welcome all into your restaurant, right? And we're going to talk about you know hiring practices and where you're finding your people because this is a labor crisis. So let's keep that on the side for just a second. But it's all about inclusivity and elevating people that are less fortunate, that haven't had advantages, that are now being given a second opportunity or even their first opportunity to grow in a career that can take them anywhere. And that's what inspires me the most. Because I learned a long time ago that in this business, you don't need a formal education. You can start at the very bottom. You know, you can be sweeping the floor, being in the dish pit, and you can end up owning a chain of restaurants. And I've interviewed guests that have done that. I've had employees in my own restaurants that have gone on to open their own restaurants. So that is a beautiful thing unto itself. But you're really, you're really encouraging and nurturing that particular thing to happen. And that is so rare. So tell me about where you find your people and then what the process is like. How do you onboard people and then expose them to all aspects of your business and then, you know, turn them loose and see what they do? You know, that's, that's really incredible. So I've always been uh, curious of this uh, intersection between a nonprofit and profit um, mm -hmm. world. Okay. Um, yeah. And 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 a lot of people um, kind of discouraged me from that thought. Uh, a lot of uh, my mentors in the restaurant industry, um, a lot of chefs that I have a lot of respect for, just thought that that might not work, that it might not be practical. And so I kind of uh, you know cultivated. Uh, my ideas on this subject while I was um, at the St. Joseph Center. I was there for uh, a de decade and I uh, graduated over 1,200 students. And um, so when I was ready to uh, take the next step in my career, uh, when I left to open the Mar Vista, uh, which was a 125-seat uh, fine dining restaurant, we opened uh, our first year. Uh, I think we did $4 million in business. It was a huge opening. Wow, I guess. Um, awesome. We were. That's a great yeah, start. We were, Right. Uh, we were we were uh, literally booked um, out um, for a year straight. Um, some people said we opened too big, maybe in retrospect. Uh, you know, that's that's a possibility. But um, and we could get into that. But um, so what I did from the very beginning is that I uh, wanted to bring along so many of the people I'd worked with in nonprofit into my first for-profit venture. Gotcha. And at, at one point in that first year, I had nine um, on staff um, from uh, from the CTP uh, program. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that became my model moving forward. Uh, you already I, had that I, chemistry, right? Like you knew these people, these people knew you, you had worked together closely and it's like you brought them aboard. 
and you set a clear vision for the concept, right? And people jumped in and and that was a really beautiful foundation. That's what I'm seeing. Keep going. And so uh, during uh, during that first year uh, of the Mar Vista, um, mm-hmm. I, I then opened the Mar Vista Grab and Go, which is my fast casual counter service concept directly across the street. So I was running a 3,000 square foot, 125 seater on one side of the street. And then directly across the street, we had a 1,200 square foot mm-hmm. uh, fast casual counter service uh, with about 32 seats um, and a big back patio. And um, so, um, you know, at that point, I, I needed to hire on more folks and yes. I continued I continued the model. And I yep. started working with um, some um, sober living facilities that were in our neighborhood. And I met some really great guys that were looking for those uh, second and third chances. Um, and like you said, um, I had guys that were starting in the dish pit Um I'm very proud to say that um, I have a couple guys who started in the dish pit that are still with me now. And this is uh, six years into this run and they are my most senior guys. Um, So I absolutely have lived that story. Um, That is a reality in my everyday um, business. Um, And so that's, so now we're moving downtown um, and we can get into that. And then that, my next concept is the art room, um, which is kind of, um, well, it's a, it's another big endeavor. And this one is in downtown Los Angeles. Um, so that's kind of like where, that's kind of like where we're at in the well, story. It sounds um, like, so yeah, it sounds it, like you've tapped into a whole market of talent or talent to be developed and have you avoided this whole labor crisis that 99% of the other restaurant owners out there are dealing with? I mean, it sounds well, like... Well, uh, so I can I can talk to you in terms of what the pandemic was like for us. Yeah, um, please do. I, I, I know that um, you've definitely heard this before, those first few months of the pandemic in, yep. um, in, in mid-2020 were absolutely you know, frightening, uh, to say the least. Uh, you know, I looked at my um, staff and I looked at my wife even, and I thought like, wow, you know, this could, um, I mean, the, um, the numbers were unbelievable, the drop off in business. Fortunately, with the grab and go model, we were already kind of built um, on the online platforms. Uh, we, uh, you know, our food didn't suffer from um, being boxed up and presented, you know, to go. Um uh, so we easily pivoted. Uh, I wouldn't say it's easy, but we were able to pivot uh, during that. And I started to look at my numbers. I started to take a long look at, um, you know, uh, my sales uh, versus labor hours. And I started to listen more intently to um, my customers and uh, what they really wanted, um, you know, um, what they needed uh, during the pandemic, how their schedules had changed and how their eating habits had changed and how, you know, the times at which they were ordering, you know, maybe they were ordering and then, you know, um, they were ordering for dinner for the following night or they were, you know, uh, getting, using the food for school, uh, you know, for, for lunches because now their kids were home from school or all these different factors were happening. And, and we just kind of, you know, um, gave our customers not only what they wanted, but also got smarter and more efficient um, as a business um, 
And uh, again, kind of that Kaizen, you know, uh, philosophy, everybody came together and we got really, really efficient and really good at what we did. Um, And so, um, you know, through, through this, as far as staffing, I was able to keep all of my existing staff, um, but also start to prepare, um, you know, for my expansion because we were already under construction um, when COVID hit in downtown. So this project is a, it's a large project in downtown Los Angeles and it's been developing now for two years. So it was actually a blessing in disguise. It gave us a chance to pause and to do some really cool, um, you know, design changes. Um, to make our, our space, uh, you know, more COVID proof, um, you know, moving forward for the future. But um, it, it also um, made me look even harder at, you know, hiring from a different population, um, taking folks that um, had been, you know, disenfranchised. Um, uh, I think that the restaurant industry gave, well, I would say this, I would say that COVID kind of gave everybody a chance to um, realize that there there might have been uh, some shortcomings as far as, you know, life and work balance in the industry. And I Mm -hmm. think that's why we're having a hard time getting those people back. Um, And so, you know, I always had this idea of, you know, you know, recruiting from a pool of people that, you know, previously might not have been, you know, first on your list um, yeah, um, right. in, in, in previous times. So I, I don't know. I think there maybe now we see that restaurant owners and, um, uh, you know, folks that um, have had some struggles and some challenges in their lives are two groups that might need each other more than ever at this point. Wow. So many, so much comes to mind because we we're talk we talked about the mass exodus of the industry and so many people have left, but now you're you're talking about you have another part of your model that has shorter hours, right? There's six hour shifts versus eight hour right. shifts. Let's talk about that because that is so key. I mean you're not burning your people out in an industry known for burning its people out. Correct. So this is really important. And, and I think that it, it came about, uh, we have some pretty um, strict labor laws here in California. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, you know, just the, the madness of, of breaks, you know, like, oh, you got to take your 15 and now you have to take 30 minutes unpaid and, you know, and nobody wants to do that. Um, and then, you know, getting into overtime, which is like, you know, blows your labor costs yep, uh, you know, out of the water. Uh, so, yes. you know, and then nobody, nobody feels good. Nobody feels good after they've worked 10 hours. <laughs> I don't. Um, you know, and and so I just feel like, um, you know, when you address the inequity in pay between front of house and back of house, which I have instituted a universal tipping, um, uh, you know, program uh, at my restaurants um, where every single person that's on shift um, shares equally in those tips, whether they touch the table or not. So that includes runners, baristas, yeah, yeah. Uh, bartenders, um, you know, uh, back yeah. of house. Um, 
and and that has so so in LA County, um, we went to fifteen dollars minimum wage. I believe that was in two thousand eighteen. Um, so we've been in that reality for quite a while. Um, the fifteen dollar minimum wage, um, and now by doing the universal tip model, um, I've gotten most of my guys are averaging twenty dollars an hour, which is I'm proud to say is an actual. Um, living wage um, here in Los Angeles. So um, I'm very proud of the $20 an hour thing that we've been averaging. Um, and then by shortening the shifts, um, I avoid the 30 minute unpaid break um, where people are kind of like, I mean, if you talk to your employees, most of them don't want to do it. It's like, well, I'm not getting paid. And now I just have to like go sit in my car or go like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. They'd <laughs> walk just down the block. Keep working. Right. They, uh-huh. They'd rather keep working. Um, so, um, you know, the, the idea. So I shortened my hours from 11 and we were closing at five. This was like pandemic hours. And so I had people on these like six hour shifts and um, I just saw that the productivity went up and it seemed like you know the uh, the morale went up it seemed like yeah. people were having a, a better time getting in and out and they felt more of that work life balance um and so that's what i hope to continue um with the art room which is the new um the new uh, restaurant in downtown la that's opening next month april yeah, I want to talk about that in a minute, but let's let's stay on this topic about your model because I'm finding it fascinating and it sounds very very positive overall, but is there any downside to it? Do you have anyone who isn't feeling that they're getting enough hours? Do you have anyone who is not necessarily happy about the tip share because if they worked in another restaurant before, maybe the front of house staff obviously always out-earned the back of house staff and then suddenly dilute their earnings? I mean, is volume, you know, enough to obviously keep everybody happy? And are they all making really good money, and they're all really happy? Or there, is there any challenges with that? Well, I, I think that this comes down to, for me at least, uh, fine dining versus fast casual. Yeah, for and sure. I can say that I'm not going to go back to fine dining. <laughs> um. You know, I, I just think that there's something inherent about managing the expectations, not only of, uh, of your customers, but of your staff uh, with the fine dining model, um, mm-hmm. you know, because yep. everything is kind of that old brigade system. This is my job. This is your job. You do this. You know, if this is not happening, then I'm standing around doing nothing. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Um, yeah, I, I think that um, the idea that if you can't make, you know, a taco, then I don't want you to work for me. Like, I literally, it's like, that's that's kind of like, you know, on its simplest terms, it's like, you know, if you can't, um, you know, make a, a cappuccino and make a taco and run something to the table, um, you know, everybody has to be able to do everything. And, and honestly, like everyone who works for me, uh, will hit the dish pit as well. Um, I do everything compostable now, so right. I don't have any hard plates or silverware. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do do our own you know, pots and pans, for instance. Um, and that's just like part of the job. 
Um, and uh, we do QR codes, um, you know, so people can order from their table or they can like, you know, walk into the restaurant um, and order um, uh, at the counter. Um, and this, again, this allows people, um, uh, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. Uh, so we basically talking about QR uh, codes and, and giving people opportunities to order from the table, which increases efficiency. So you don't need as many right. people. Yeah, exactly. Increases efficiently efficiency and we don't need as many people, but also we have gotten rid of the traditional server role. Yeah. So there's no server. Nobody comes up to your table and takes your mm -hmm. order. Um, sure. And so I think that that was the biggest pushback that I was getting from the traditional front of house waiter type. Yes. That yes. would be the mindset of the traditional server front of house person, for sure. Definitely. Mm -hmm. But now we're talking about everybody doing everything. So that levels the playing field. And it means everyone should share in all the tips, which I can see paving the way to making that really work. Correct. Yep. Um, I, I, you know, um, I, I think the only exception that I'm running at the new place is with the bartenders. The bartenders okay. will yeah. be able to keep their tips on on their on their drink sales. Okay, fair enough. Because I, I think that's a leap too far. I don't think we're there yet. I, somehow I'll figure that out how to get around the bartender stuff. But to, yeah. to, to have some to have some good bartenders in there that kind of know what they're doing, uh, they they still you know are demanding to get all their tips on their drink sales. But, yeah. um, and and they'll they'll still they'll still tip out, but with that one exception. Um, everybody else will be sharing equally in the tips. Yeah, we used to have a challenge with our servers tipping out the bartenders on the service bar a certain percentage because the service bar is dedicated to making drinks for our. our right. You know, we, we had some challenges there. You know, tip shares were always like a one of those things that, um, yeah, no matter what you did, it's like not everybody was happy until you just put your foot down and says, okay, this is what we believe is truly fair. But your model takes that to a whole nother level. That's that's great. It's, it's really cool. So we're going to be partnering with a bunch of nonprofit organizations in downtown LA. Downtown mm -hmm. LA has, you know, for a long time had a very big problem with um, homelessness. Yes. Uh, which is pretty, been, been I remember. pretty well, pretty well mm -hmm. documented. Definitely. And um, so we're going to be working with social um, service programs uh, that are local to us, and we'll be holding a job fair, and we will be taking some um, pre-screened um, candidates um, um, from each one of these organizations, and I hope to fill out the rest of my staff. I have some core guys that obviously are coming down to you know down uh, to the new place with me, but we're hoping to fill out our staff with folks that um, that need a job. And that are, uh, you know, are what I what I feel are are great um, candidates. You know, people that are uh, eager and um, and and very uh, trainable. You said morale is particularly high, and I think that's tremendous. Um, is there something or special programs that you that you do to? You know, to team bond. You know, to get the whole team like on the same page and. You know, obviously we work with people and you don't like everybody, but you have to work together. You have to have mutual respect. There has to be teamwork and all that. But I'm hearing that you're really creating some sort of special chemistry. You know what I mean? And people are are just uplifted together. And the end result is a happier guest. I mean, guests are probably inspired by your model when they when they learn about it and they're happy to support your restaurant because of what you're doing. 
but the whole thing just seems to be a rising tide. You know, is is that happening? Are there any particular um, personality challenges that you have to deal with from time to time? Um, obviously, it's human nature, but tell us about that. I, I think this comes inherently with the idea that everybody does everything. I think that mm. this really yeah. does cement that idea of being um, a team. And uh, we have had great success at the at the MV Grab and Go. The Grab and Go has been running now um, for almost six years, and you know I think one of my greatest, well, I mean, no doubt, is been the retention of staff. People stay with me for you know two, three, four, five years, um, and uh, I mean, you know, that's you know worth oh, its yeah. weight in gold. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, in this industry. And so I, I just feel like, you know, the idea that um, things are equitable, that, you know, mm-hmm. that everybody is leading by example. Everybody is asked to do the same types of, of tasks um, and everybody is held accountable by one another. Um, I, I think that that really makes people feel good. I, I think this is the secret sauce. I think that, you know, there has to be equity. Do you have trainers besides yourself that are getting people up to speed? Because the inclusivity piece and where a lot of these people are coming from have varying levels of experience. Some are more experienced than others, but you recognize something in a person. You know they've got something special. You want to give them a break and you bring somebody in, but they need to learn a lot. Um, You obviously have your hand in a thousand different fires at once, but do you have time or do you have other people that are helping you bring people on board? And what would that process look like? Well, I mean, I've, I mean, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for passion about, you know, about this industry um, for food, for service. Um, and I've conducted thousands of interviews, um, filling in, you know, uh, the culinary training program uh, over that decade. Um, and, and I, and I was always looking for, you know, that, that, that true passion of food and service, um, and that combination. Um, and, and again, you know, you find that a lot of these folks have experience, you know, you know, maybe they've worked, um, you know, they've. They uh, worked the kitchen uh, when they were incarcerated or, you Mm -hmm. know, they've been cooking for their sober living or, you know, um, they have uh, restaurant experience. Uh, A lot of these folks have previous restaurant experience before, you know, certain um, challenges came along in their life. Um, So we are finding that there there is some pretty good experience out there. And um, um, these folks are um, super willing um and uh eager for the for the opportunity um i'm sorry i what was it what was your question well i really okay. want to f- yeah i was i was asking about the onboarding process and if you right. have other and, people that helped you train these people because you've got you know you're running a business you're putting out delicious food you've got you've got to be in a thousand places at once yet i get the sense that you're a very hands-on leader as well but obviously you can't do all this by yourself. So I'm curious if you have other people that are in that role of bringing up the new people that come into your organization. So again, I think this is like the promoting from within thing. Um, You know, uh, it's my senior guys that have been with me for a long time. These are the people that I rely on to, um, to train up the new guys. Um, Mm -hmm. Nice. And yeah. And so that, you know, these are the guys that are making the most money and these are the guys that, you know, have assumed those management roles. Um, so it's, it's really, yeah, using, using your core people to train. 
Besides training now, is there an evaluation process? Everything in my book, at least when I ran restaurants, really began with a key results or job description for every position. And yours obviously is even more diverse because they have so many responsibilities and you know they've got to learn the entire organization. But once somebody understands what their job expectations are, you know, you'd have a regular performance review and let people know how they're doing. But then we also gave people lots of recognition while they were doing their jobs every single day. And we had weekly recognition programs for people who went above and beyond. You know, we had a program called Difference Dollars, and we'd recognize two people a week that really either helped a guest, helped a teammate, did something extraordinary above and beyond the normal scope of their job. But, you know, it sounds to me like you, there has to be some sort of an evaluation every so often just to let people know, hey, this is working out great, or you need a little improvement here. What's that process like for, for you? Um, I mean, really, I, I'm such a hands-on guy, you know, and at this point, I think that we're small enough. I mean, you know, mm. my guys see me, um, you know, every okay. every other day, every week, um, I'm, I'm there, I'm around. And so, I, you know, I'm constantly, um, you know, uh, evaluating and uh, teaching and uh, acknowledging and rewarding, but all of those things are are super important. Um, I, I think those are some challenges as as you know our family gets bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, um, because we have another restaurant actually that's already under construction that's mm-hmm. coming on for 2023. So we could you know <laughs> talk about that next year, but that's already happening. So we are we are busy. Uh, expand. So, you know, I think those are some programs that I'm going to have to dial in uh, as we get larger. Let's talk about the art room because I saw some beautiful photographs and it's almost like an art gallery meets a hospitality space. And it's really upscale and it's really elegant. And I saw beautiful woods and beautiful lighting. And, you know, it is definitely a, a destination. It's something that blends, you know, two important things, the arts and food, right? I think that's a that's a really unique concept, and I haven't seen that so much before. It goes so much beyond just a restaurant displaying artwork on the walls that might be for sale by a local artist. This is literally a curated gallery from what it looked like to me with really amazing work. Tell us about it. It is. It is. It is. And, and that's, that's a big part of my background. My brother is a, uh, is a uh, painter. Mm-hmm. Um, a fine, uh, fine artist. Yeah. And, uh, that, so that, that kind of like runs through my family. Uh, we were both musicians as well. Um, that's another thing that tied in, um, uh, with my concepts. So, um, when I opened the Bar Vista, um, we, uh, were actually nominated for James Beard, uh, for restaurant design. And, um, you know, we had these amazing murals, um, and we did a live music program weekly. So this intertwining of, of art and, um, and food, because I do see, you know, being a chef um, in an artistic uh, way, I, I do consider um, art, uh, you know, cooking and plating and all of that, you know, a very artistic endeavor. Definitely. And so I've always been looking for a way to, uh, to kind of combine all these experiences. And so this is my latest iteration, my latest attempt That's at this. Great. Um, and, uh, it's in, you know, the art room is, is this 1915, um, original construction. It was, a um, a factory mm-hmm. and it has this amazing brick and, um, 
it, it basically it's 8,000 square feet and it's 2,500 2, square feet of restaurant and bar. Um, and then it flows into 2,500 square feet of curated gallery space. Um, and we're also going to be doing private dining, um, like a, a tasting menu, um, uh, uh, private dining experience in the gallery space itself. The gallery is open to the public and to all of my diners. So it has these huge glass doors that open straight in. You can like, you know, there's sight lines from all the tables where you can like see the art and you are invited to literally just open the door or walk into the gallery space uh, while you're waiting for your food, um, you know, to enjoy it while you're dining. The artists are rotating every six weeks. It's curated by this amazing outfit called Seasons, uh, which is now Uh Seasons L.A., um, they're out of London and uh, they are extremely good at what they do. I love the stuff that they curate. Um, they're very good at selling art, which, you know, God awesome. bless them because yes. artists artists need to sell their work. And yes. Um, yeah, so I'm just super excited um, to be uh, inspired by the um, by the different artists um, that will be showing and, and to... Um, you know, let that influence what I'm doing on my tasting menu for those private dining experiences in the gallery. Mm. Um, and so then the, the other third of the building, the other 3,000 square feet is the home of Ox Architecture. Um, so it is an architectural office design workspace, um, conference rooms, reception areas, and, you know, um, mm-hmm. just a really, really groovy place that's all about art and design and um uh, you know, it's very, uh, very exciting to see it all come together. Is it in the arts district, this building? Is it closer to the design centers, the fashion district? Like, where's the neighborhood? It is the, uh, it is South Park. So oh, okay. South yeah. Park is, yeah. So South Park um, is uh, very close to what is now crypto.com. No, no longer the Staples Center. Still getting yeah. used to that. Okay. Yep. So yeah, the crypt. Um, so we're about uh, two blocks away from there, um, and uh, it is a very, very heavily um, populated area now. Um, it's uh, it, so you know when you have to do your uh, your notifications when you're bringing in your liquor license. I think yeah. we set some kind of record. Um, uh-huh. and we had a 600 foot radius. We had 7,000 residents. Um, you know, so there's there's the, all these skyscrapers and new condos and um, and it, it's just it it's an amazing um, you know energy uh, to this little nook in Los Angeles and, and again it's it's uh, the South Park neighborhood. Okay, I remember. Now you talked earlier in um, in the show about maybe going a little big on your opening. Can you elaborate? Mm-hmm. And what was your, did you have a marketing plan in place? Did you have a soft opening? Did you just open the doors and people came based on your location and plenty of people seeing what was going on and new spaces coming in? And then all of a sudden you got that buzz already going. Like how did the whole marketing thing come together? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, uh, that project was about a two year um, uh, build out ramp up. Um, yeah. So I was, I was, uh, I was raising money and um, I was uh, just, you know, tinkering on the concept and um, the design of the place, um, you know, all of that. And uh, we uh, did a ton of PR. I already had, um, I was pretty, uh, I had a good level of notoriety at that mm-hmm. point. 
I, I had been working for some pretty um, big name celebrities, some A-listers, and um, I had gone on Food Network in one shop. Oh, excellent. And, I wasn't aware of that. So, awesome. Yeah. So they it, so that was a big story back then in like 2015. It was like, you know, chef from Venice goes to New York, wins Chopped. Um, you know, little do they know that he lived his life as an episode of Chopped, you know. Yeah. I, I ran the Bread and Roses Cafe. Yep. And um, you know, we were basically making gourmet food um uh, based on donations. Um, so you never really kind of knew the menu uh changed uh based yeah. on what we had. And um so um oh God, I was in the uh, uh Los Angeles Times and like you know the Chicago Tribune and whatnot, and so I, I had a good bit of notoriety. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was yes. also I was also part of a um, uh, a band at that time. I'd mentioned that I'm a musician, yep. and we were doing a lot of benefit shows, um, raising money for um, uh, for homeless outreach, and um, so we had some good mojo, and uh, we just for kind sure. of snowballed that. Uh, that Love you it. know we rolled that into the opening and um there was a lot of anticipation uh we had taken a pretty iconic space um that had housed a uh, a billiard hall and like a rock and roll concert venue and and so it was a very it, it was a very iconic space that we were like completely transforming and there was a ton of anticipation and like i said we we opened huge wow that um, is awesome what a great yeah, story and, 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 in retrospect, I think we should have taken it a little slower and gotten better, and we should have practiced more. <laughs> um, we could have used some more soft opening. So looking okay. back, I might have yeah. I might have segmented the dining room. I might have opened just a portion of it. Um, I may have done more soft openings, and I may have, um, like I said, just gotten better. At, at what we were attempting to do before we were booked every single night for a year straight. Well, there was no looking <laughs> back at that point. It was only what's ahead. Yeah. Right? And it sounds like you're still just looking forward. You don't look back because it's all part of our journey. You know, life's a journey, we, we not learned, a destination. We learned that we learned a ton of lessons. I mean, and you know, in this business, yeah. I mean, you, you just don't know until you know Yeah, certain things. Well, it sounds like you're really happy doing what you're doing, but what's next for Chef D? You got any big plans beyond what you're doing now? I I do. I can't talk about this much, but um, okay, I, I've signed I've signed a production deal um, uh, for a TV show. Um, Excellent. Yeah, and it's with uh, a signed to deal with uh, all three media, um, who's responsible for most of Gordon Ramsay's uh, hmm. shows. Um, this will be a departure. So we, it, will, it won't be, it won't be a competition show or anything like that. It's, uh-huh. it's going to be like a premium docu series, and it's yeah. really going to be about what we just talked about. It's going to be ta- uh, about, um, you know, uh, people, their stories, um, their challenges and how they're a good fit for, for this industry and how maybe this industry can change a little bit and come a little bit closer to them and how they can do the same and come a little bit closer to the industry. Um, to, you know, it's, it's, uh, again, it's two, two entities that I think need each other now, maybe more Mm. than ever, you know, in this post pandemic reality. Fantastic. Wow. This is tremendous. Well, it's certainly been our pleasure having you on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, Chef D. What would your advice be? Um, 
to operators moving forward. Obviously, the pandemic has decimated the industry. Those that are still standing are really shell-shocked, beaten up, and it's not over yet. And there's been lots of government relief, which has helped, but it's not been enough. And it's like people are just hanging by a thread. And it's our goal, obviously, to re-inspire people, to rediscover the passion that they had for this business. But what would you say to operators and managers and people in this business moving forward that are still part of our industry? Because it's such a proud, passionate industry. Um, I think that you have to uh, invest in your people. Um, I think that our, 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 our staff, um, our crew, uh, that it, it, it's, the, it's the lifeblood of, of everything that we do. And I think that um, when we start to think about people and their lives and um, how they feel every day when they show up for work and how they feel when they go home, um, I think that you know, creating this nurturing, respectful um, you know, environment that increases willingness, um, you know, um, in, in folks. Cause I, I just don't think that you can, you can teach willingness. I think that, um, this is something that you have to, that you have to cultivate, um, and you have to lead by example and you have to invest, um, and you have to put a priority on, on people's lives and that work-life balance. I think that's really the key, uh, Moving forward, um, I, I think that that's what's going to allow this industry as a whole to um, get rid of some of the old negative stereotypes about it, and and be thought of uh, once again as a career and not just a job, not just a place where we stop in, uh, but a place where we can spend our entire careers and we can have this really um, happy and fulfilling. Um, Life. Well, I think you're doing a tremendous service to the industry and to those people that are in need of a second shot and just elevating the business as a whole. I think that's tremendous. So thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And thanks to our audience for tuning in again. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. We'll see you all in the next episode. Stay tuned. Thank you, Chef D, for an amazing interview. You're a great guest. And I'm, again, so pleased that you're sharing your philosophies with our audience. It's a wonderful thing you're doing, giving people a second chance, up-leveling our industry, and you know, turning jobs into career opportunities for the future. It's a beautiful business, ours. It's based on passion. It's based on pride. And Giving these people these chances to learn and to move up in your organization is a wonderful thing. So thanks for what you're doing. Thanks also to our sponsors of this week's podcast and the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. So why not leave us a question also? I love this feature. It's really fun. Just go to our show notes for this episode. About halfway down, you can see a button that says, Ask Us Anything. You can actually record a message to me. Any challenges, any questions you have about running your restaurant, operations, whatnot, I'd love to respond back to you. Stay well, everyone. We'll see you next time. People go to restaurants for lots of reasons. What the customer doesn't know is the thousands of details it takes to run a great restaurant. This is a high-risk, high-fail business. It's a treacherous road, and smart operators need a professional guide. I'm Roger. I've started many highly successful, high-profit restaurants. I'm passionate about helping other owners and managers not just succeed, but knock it out of the park. You don't just want to run a restaurant. You want to dominate your competition and create a lasting legacy. Join the Academy, and I'll show you how it's done. 
Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.